Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Well, hello, friends. My name is Ian Graham, and I'm the pastor of Ecclesia here in Princeton. And we are here today to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And so if you're new with this, or if you hear the phrase resurrection of Jesus and you say, wait, what? Are we we still doing myths and legends? Isn't that the product of some bygone age? Haven't we moved beyond this kind of thinking? If that's you, I just want to say a special welcome. And, And for all of us, whether we've been following Jesus for a long time, or we are skeptical of the whole thing and don't really know why we're watching a church service right now, wherever you may fall on that spectrum, the question as to is it plausible that Jesus is in fact alive is an important one. I think that God has given us our senses, our faculties of reason to understand him in the world, for the world's order to make sense to us. And so it would follow that in some ways, though we can't prove everything, though we can't answer every question beyond any shadow of doubt, otherwise it wouldn't be called faith, But in some ways, we have to be able to understand and articulate what it means for Jesus to be alive, what it means scientifically, what it means historically, and then what I think is the most important question is what does it mean for us as a people as we live this out? What does it mean for our world? And so no matter where you're coming from, no matter what presuppositions you hold, I want to say welcome to you. And then I want to just trace and sketch out the plausibility very briefly. There'll be so many unanswered questions. I'm I'm hesitant to make too many claims, but I do just want to start from a very wide angle and then move down into historical plausibility and then to what does it mean for us? So the first question, is it scientifically plausible that Jesus is alive? Well, physicist Alan Lightman recently published an article in The Atlantic entitled, Where Science and Miracles Meet. And in the article, Lightman draws the parallels between many of the accepted conclusions of theoretical physicists, things like the multiverse and string theory, and the accepted conclusions of people of faith who accept things like miracles and the idea that there is a transcendent God. And he juxtaposes these two seemingly opposite and contradictory arguments. And he does so in order to show that they are, in fact, much more similar than we might expect. Look at what Lightman writes. The inconvenient truth about both of these explanations of the fine-tuning problem, intelligent design on the one hand and the existence of a multiverse on the other, is that neither can be proved. Both must be taken as a matter of faith by their respective supporters. Did you see what he said there? Theoretical physicist, works at MIT, saying at some point, even the conclusions of physicists, even the conclusions of those who are trying to excavate the origins of the world and the way that it works at a minute level, even those conclusions are a matter of faith. And so, scientifically, is it plausible that Jesus is alive? Well, when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, we are talking about a question of science. Is it possible? 
Science, by definition, studies that which is repeatable. Scientists can share their methods, their assumptions, their conclusions, and then part of the scientific method is inviting others to test those theories and conclusions. Now, the problem for many scientists and many people who see the world through a scientific lens is that when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, not only is that something that we've never observed happening in the history of the world, somebody coming back to life, it's not repeatable. There's no experiment you can run to observe it. And the New Testament writers, understanding that our first level of experience with this kind of phenomena was through our senses, through what we can see, through what we can hear and touch, they write often about what they have seen. They're trying to say, I have seen Jesus alive. This is something that that is so surprising and astonishing, and yet I have seen it. Look at what John writes in 1 John. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed and we have seen it and testified to it and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. Is it plausible that Jesus is resurrected? From a scientific perspective, we have to at least say it's plausible because there are so many theories being used to plug in gaps that we don't quite understand. Theories like the multiverse, which suggests that there are trillions of universes and that we just happen to live in this one. I mean, that's a faith claim, isn't it? And so as we start from the question of science, I would say that it is plausible for the resurrection of Jesus to be a part of our world, to be something that has happened. And I'm not alone in that. The beauty, being in a place like Princeton, is we are surrounded, and in our church community, we have some of the brightest scientists in the world, aspiring PhDs, professors, people who have concluded that there is in fact a harmony between science and faith that they can do all their beautiful work exploring the world and still hold the conclusion that Jesus, against everything that maybe we have observed, against everything that our senses tell us, is in fact alive. And the question of Jesus' resurrection, the question of the plausibility of Jesus' resurrection, is not just a question of science. And of course, we haven't completely answered that question. There are so many beautiful treatments of what it means for faith and science to be held in concert and in harmony, done by people who are far more versed in scientific method than I am. But just as a very broad flyover level, is it plausible? I think we can conclude yes. Primarily, the question of the resurrection of Jesus is is not only a scientific question, but primarily I would say it's a question of history. History, as opposed to science, studies that which is unrepeatable. Of course, we all know the cliche that history repeats itself, and we experience that at at a daily level, but that, of course, is not true of the events themselves. The event happens, and then we are left to make meaning of it. And as much postmodern scholarship has realized, there is not one interpretation, not one experience of an event, but there are several ways that an event can be interpreted and described. The Bible itself bears witness to this. There's not just one account of the resurrection, which is seen as the monolithic, this is the authorized, certified version. No, rather there are four accounts. 
And these four accounts, what we call the Gospels, uh, which are basically biographies of Jesus, these four accounts all agree on the big fact of Easter, that Jesus is alive, but there are within them differing details that they either hold in tension or disagree upon. And while the questions of the differing details are important, we want to focus on the biggest claim of Easter morning. Is it historically possible that Jesus is alive? Is that the best explanation of what happened on that Easter morning some 2,000 years ago? You see, whether you believe in the resurrection of Jesus or not, the fact is that something happened. Something happened 2,000 years ago that forever changed the world and still significantly impacts our world today. We still count our years up from the year that we think Jesus was crucified and rose again. The Christian faith is the largest faith in the world. David Bentley Hart argues that most of our modern achievements in science, philanthropy, education, and the arts have been the result of people seeking to understand and to serve God, living out their faith. Something changed 2,000 years ago, and the question for us is, is the explanation for that shift the fact that Jesus is alive? And I want to touch on a couple different suggestions that by no means prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus is alive, but that are, I think, strong arguments in favor of the resurrection of Jesus being the best explanation for what shifted in our world. Now, one of the primary arguments against the stories recorded in the Gospels is that they mythologize Jesus. They they make him into a legend several years after the fact. Most of the gospel documents were were completed sometime between the, the time frame of 20 years to 50 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the argument essentially goes like this. Jesus' devoted followers thought so much of him and had so much of their hopes and dreams placed upon him that eventually they deified him. They made him into a godlike figure. And that has been the story that has perpetuated itself throughout the generations since then. But there are several historical elements that push against this theory. First, the testimony of women proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. Let me explain what I mean. The gospel writers all include women as among the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. But here's the thing. In this culture, in this ancient Near Eastern culture, first century culture, and and of course this is wrong and patriarchal, but the testimony of women was not trusted. It was not admissible in a court of law. This culture viewed women as prone to being deceived, as prone to hysteria. Again, a lot of bad stereotypes here. But what this means is that if somebody were fabricating the story after the fact, it would just be much easier to leave this part out. You wouldn't proclaim the testimony of women as something in your favor. Now, the same is true of all the disciples of Jesus Have you ever told a story that happened to you or that you were a part of that has maybe grown over time? As William Stafford says, it has legended itself. Have you ever embellished your role in the story? Do you think Peter particularly liked being reminded all the time how he abandoned and denied Jesus, how he went back on his word and completely deserted him? Do you think he liked that part of the story? Again, if there's a level of control being exerted over these narratives, why did those in control not smooth over these details? The second, you know, again, we're doing historical perhaps here, is the worship of faithful Jewish people. 
The Jewish people in Jesus' day, and, and, and many in our day now, were fiercely devoted to one God. They were the original monotheists. Their daily prayer, the Shema, reminds them the Lord is one. For these Jewish women and men to proclaim a man as God is contradictory to everything that they believed and practiced. But something made them insist that Jesus was not just a great man, not just a great teacher, not just a wonder worker, but very God himself in the flesh. Even James, the brother of Jesus, who during Jesus' life we see suggests his brother has gone completely mad, comes to be a believer, and not only a believer, a leader of the church in Jerusalem. Can you imagine worshiping one of your siblings? What would have had to have changed in James's view to go from thinking his brother has gone off the rails, some sort of insane egomaniac, to thinking that he was exactly who he claimed to be, to thinking it so uh, profoundly and so persistently that he would be executed for his faith? You see, the worship of Jesus by faithful monotheistic Jews is, again, not a, an argument beyond any shadow of a doubt. But something suggesting that there was something significant that changed their view and practice almost overnight. And of course, there are other explanations that account for this shift, but the resurrection is certainly one of them. Third, the, the last argument I want to make, and we've already mentioned James, is that none of the disciples recanted. Historically, all of Jesus' closest followers didn't gain great fame or prestige for their testimony about Jesus. No, this, this thing, proclaiming Jesus was alive, was not a, an invitation towards, uh, to being on preachers and sneakers. No, they were persecuted, and eventually nearly all of them gave their lives to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is in fact alive. Now, if you had a conspiracy of at least 11 people, and all of them knew, or at least some of them knew it was a ruse of some sorts, wouldn't you think it likely that upon the threat of painful, agonizing death, that one of them might spill the beans? But the apostles were all undaunted. And so I just want to ask the question, could it be that perhaps they knew they had a hope that had already conquered death, that their faith in the Savior sustained them in the face of death? Perhaps. These are all good starting points to suggest that the re resurrection of Jesus historically is a viable explanation. But here's the thing. I hope that I've given you something to think about. I hope that you've begun to th just kind of weigh out the evidence, no matter where you are on that spectrum of like, I don't believe any of this, to I follow this with my whole life. I hope that just you've begun to think a little bit. But, but here's the thing. I'm going to let you in on a very little secret. No one believes in the resurrection of Jesus because it's plausible. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus because it's too good to be true. A couple of weeks ago, my family and I watched the new Disney movie called Raya and the Last Dragon. And our kids, long before this movie had come out, have just fallen in love with the idea of dragons, uh, with these creatures that can fly and are companions to uh, people. They just love, they read books, they watch shows about dragons. They just love these creatures. 
And as the movie ended, I was putting our girls to bed and, and I'm sitting there kind of going through our bedtime routine when I realize that both our girls are sobbing. And I figured they were just tired, but I asked them, I was like, what's, what's wrong, girls? Is, is everything okay? And our beautiful middle daughter, through tears, blurted out, I wish dragons were real. Now, friends, it'd be easy to write that moment off as the vain hopes of a childish imagination. Oh, what a, what a nice thing to say. What a nice sentiment to have that kind of hope. This immature wish for a fantasy world. But I'm not so sure that was what was going on there. You see, I think in that moment, I was in touch with the depths of what it means for us to be human. You see, I think the question for us on this Easter is not just, is the resurrection plausible? The question for us is, is it beautiful? Does it fulfill the longings of the deepest parts of our souls? Does it proclaim something that we hope is true? Now, it may seem strange to you that I've gone from saying that Jesus was not a legend, not a mythological figure, to talking about things like fantasy stories. Doesn't that kind of undermine what I said before? Well, I'm not so sure. You see, in Luke 24, the risen Jesus appears to two followers of Jesus as they walk away from Jerusalem, and they're walking away devastated. You see, nobody was expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. That's not the hope that they had. That's why nobody was waiting outside the tomb with the tailgate party, waiting for Jesus to step out. No, everybody is dispersing. They think that these hopes that they had built upon Jesus and his kingdom, they think that they have been dashed forever. And so these two disciples are walking away from Jerusalem when the narrator, Luke, tells us that the risen Jesus joins them. And as Jesus joins them, he asks them, in, in a sort of funny bit of storytelling, what have you been talking about? And because Luke's let us in on the joke that Jesus is the one who is in fact walking with them, we see the irony here. But the two travelers don't know that it's Jesus. And so they begin to tell Jesus everything that has happened to Jesus. After the two have explained to Jesus everything that happened to Jesus, Jesus then proceeds to walk them through a Bible study, demonstrating how it was self-evident from the scriptures, the Old Testament as we call it, themselves that the Messiah would suffer. And as evening comes, they sit down to a meal with Jesus. Jesus takes bread, he blesses it, and he breaks it. And it is only then, in this moment, that Jesus is revealed to these two disciples. It is only then that they recognize him, and it says that immediately he vanishes from their sight. And as the two are sitting there startled by what they have just experienced, startled by not only the fact that they've been walking with Jesus all day long, but that the rumors are true, he is in fact alive. It, it says in verse 32, they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? In that same hour, they got up and they returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. And they were saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told them what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Their hearts burned within them. And it's here that I think that the truth of the resurrection is seen so vividly for us. 
Not just that it's plausible, not just that our emotions are awakened in the telling of the story, but there's something deep in our bones that declares this is true, and there's something deep within us that longs for us to be true. My daughter's longing for a world where dragons roam the skies may seem like a childish fantasy, but I think it's expressing something far deeper, our longing for wholeness, our longing for beauty, our longing for adventure, our longing for hope, our longing for what the Bible calls shalom. And the resurrection of Jesus is a surprise, a turn in the expected order of events. On Friday, Jesus is killed, his life given over to be killed by the collusion of religious and political powers, by the forces of darkness and by our very sin. And the world that we've come to expect, the world as we've always known it, as we've always experienced, tells us that there's no more to the story, that this is the end. What a tragic ending to a good life to a good teacher and a good man. But as much as this is the expected way that things are to go, dawn breaks on Easter Sunday morning. God raised Jesus up from the dead because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. To the world of loss, to the world of death and decay and sadness, Jesus emerges victorious, the love of God conquering the grave and setting us free to live as God's new creation, his new humanity. I don't know about you, but I long for that to be true. Luke shows us the moment where Jesus first appears to many of his disciples. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace, peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you frightened? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see me, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while in their joy they were still disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you got anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. This is an incredible scene. Did you notice the first word that Jesus says to them as he stands among them? Peace. This is what Jesus proclaims to us. This is what he brings to us. The biblical notion of peace is not some nice inner feeling. It's not less than that, but it's so much more. The biblical notion of peace is called shalom. It is God's cosmic ordering everything in its right place, justice and beauty and goodness and wholeness and just that feeling we get when we know we're at home and we don't have to pretend this is the peace that Jesus proclaims to us upon his resurrection. And as he proclaims to these disciples this peace, as he stands in their midst, they are still overcome with wonder, with surprise, with doubt. Fantasy writer and author J.R.R. Tolkien calls this moment the turn. And the turn is when everything that came before, everything that seemed like it led to a moment of despair or a moment where there is no future, now has been turned on its head. This moment has changed everything. J.R.R. Tolkien writes of this turn. 
He says, the mark of a good tale, that however wild its events, that however fantastic or terrible the adventures it can give, when the turn comes, there's a catch of the breath, a beating and lifting of the heart, near to or accompanied by tears as keen as that given by any form of art. In the turn, we get a piercing glimpse of joy and a heart's desire that for a moment passes outside the frame, rends indeed the very web of the story and lets a gleam come through. Joy beyond the walls of the world, as poignant as grief. This catch of the breath that Luke calls our hearts burning within us. Jesus brings us a joy beyond the walls of the world, a hope as poignant and more sure than the weeping that lasts for the night. Tolkien then says, The Gospels contain a story which embraces the essence of all fairy tales, But this story has entered history and the primary real world. The gospel then has not abrogated legends. It has hallowed them, especially the happy endings. The resurrection of Jesus is where history and legend meet. As C.S. Lewis calls it, very myth become fact. The resurrection story is not only plausible, it is beautiful meeting us at the intersection of our deepest longings for hope, for beauty, and for goodness. Jesus, as he cracked open the grave, has cracked open the fear that we are alone in the world, that our lives are without order or purpose, and that worst of all, the grief and suffering that we so often experience, they have the last word. Jesus has smashed all of them as he stepped out of the grave on that Easter Sunday morning. He has broken the operating system of the cosmos. He has said that we are not left to Darwinism while we breathe and nihilism when we die. He says, behold, I make all things new. And we've tried to answer the question today, however briefly, is the resurrection plausible? We've also asked the question, is it beautiful? Is it something that we would want? And I suppose the last question then for us today is, what does it mean? What does all of this mean? If Jesus is alive, how has that changed anything? The world still seems pretty messed up to me. Terrible things are happening all around. I still feel frustrated. I feel scared. I feel alone. Is this just a nice story that gives us something to hope for on the other side of death? What do we do now? The resurrection of Jesus is not simply just about the fact that there's an eternal life that awaits us in the end. And that Jesus being alive now is somehow proof of that. No, the resurrection of Jesus proclaims that the end of time has broken right into the middle of time. That God's peace is available to us. His cosmic shalom, His right ordering of the world is available to us both individually and corporately right here and right now. That though we live in a world of despair and brokenness, God, just as He descended to the grave and conquered it, overcomes even our darkest hours by His love and by His presence. Jesus proclaims to the disciples on that first Easter Sunday, peace. And then He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the story of the Bible, and it is the story of the resurrection, God with us. Our response, when we ask the question, what do we do, is simply to receive it. 
is simply to step into this story, to acknowledge that too good to be true might be the very truth that we've been longing for, to let God's story become our story. His peace is presence. His peace is power. His peace is hope. And he wants to give that peace to each one of us today, some of us for the very first time. What if this is a story not simply about what happened, but about what happens? What if our longing to be made whole, our longing for goodness, our longing for purpose, for peace, is God's invitation to come and to take our place in the great story of God's love for the entire world? What if Jesus still invites us out of our graves today and says, come? Is the story plausible? Why, I hope we've seen that, yeah, perhaps it is plausible. Is it beautiful? I, I think so, and I hope, I hope we've seen that together today. Is it too good to be true? I think it's too good not to be. So what do we do with all of this? Simply receive it. Jesus resurrects lives. He makes all things new. He welcomes us into his presence, and he gives us his peace. Simply receive that today, friends. Grace and peace to you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.